Hello there and welcome to episode 74 of Right Where You're Sitting Now, the podcast for the website sittingnow.co.uk. I'm anticipating uh, a little response when I introduce my co-host, Mr. Mark Satir. Well, I'm going to surprise you because (laughs) it's going to be a full-bodied, a full-bodied, you know, copious response, which which is going to be, you know, uh, drawn out and um, elaborated on. As much as possible. Oh, there you go, there you go. And have you been during this heat wave, sir? I, li- I like the heat, actually. So, I, 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 but even, even, yes, it was. It got a bit excessive. It got a bit Florida-esque. Let's put it that way. A bit in, excessive. In the UK, we've been, uh, we've been. The UK is not very good when it comes to weather. Basically, you, we, you know, we are masters of the drizzle and masters of the kind of um, clement day. But when it comes to snow or extreme heat we uh we, the, the country just crumbles especially snow i've found um, we, we just fall apart our transport systems disappear you know it's it's it happens every time <laughs> it's, it's kind of embarrassing actually you see all these other countries with their uh, wonderful um responses to these things but yeah we're, we're not so good at it so uh, especially with me anyway heat is a bit is a big one i'm not a big fan of it but anyway i digress that's um who are we talking about this week mr satir that which is dead and eternally lies after strange eons, even death must die. Sitting now, me and Ken are descending into the the, the unfathomable depths to um, to stir up in the lost city of Ryle, um, the, the sleep not dead but dreaming, Michael Stately, who um, he will be regaling us on the Typhonian order and. Um, and its aspects. Well, more. Imp- um, what's the word I'm looking for? More keenly, more, we're actually more. talking about Kenneth Grant. Well, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, well, yeah. Uh, who, 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 of course, was the, the original head of um, the, the head, founder, the founder of the uh, yeah. Typhonian Order, and uh, yeah, 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 and the, and the character, the legacy, and the uh, the work of uh, Kenneth Grant, as expressed through the Typhonian Order, and as continued today through the Typhonian Order. Yeah, um, yeah. So we've finally done a Kenneth Grant episode to put it in a more <laughs> a more straight. Uh, well, not straight. Not, more, not as not as poetic. No, okay, there you go. Yeah. Not as floridly poetic. No, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm a by the numbers guy. It seems anyway. Uh, yeah. So we are talking to Michael Staley, uh, head of Starfire Publishing and um, member of the Typhonian Order, and we are talking mostly about Kenneth Grant. Although we do touch on other. Um, other things within this interview and we hope you enjoy it so let's cut over to that now Hello Michael Staley Um, I'm wondering if you could give us a brief biography of yourself please Um, Yeah, yeah sure Um, I was born in the uh, August year of 1951 uh, in Bedford, moved up to London in 1987. Uh, I was interested in the occult for as long as I can remember. Um, and then uh, mid to late 60s, I took in Alistair Crowley, read most of his stuff, devoured his work. Um, and then early 1970s, came across the work of Kenneth Grant. Um, 
started a publication called Starfire uh, in 1986 that I uh, I carried on quite a while, and then I became Kenneth Grant's um, publisher in um, the mid to late 19, uh, 1950s. And currently, I live in Northwest London uh, with my wife, a cat, uh, and a dog. And um, at the moment, my main preoccupation is uh, is um, reprinting Kenneth Grant's books, uh, Typhonian trilogies, in paperback and hardback for the first time. Is this the first time they've been available in paperback? Because I've never, I've only ever yeah. seen them in hardback. No, no, yeah. no. It is the first time. Um, some of the foreign translations of the Typhonian trilogies, they would be produced um, in in paperback. But certainly, this current reprint is the first time first time that they've been in feedback it's actually been very successful um i was actually quite taken aback i mean back in the 1980s for instance um there wasn't really too much interest in in kenneth grant and even even um in the years after his death when i was actually producing second editions of the books uh, with Steffi grant um there still didn't seem to be much interest, and uh, for some for some reason, these reprints have really taken off. Yeah, I know. I go to Watkins a lot in London, and there's always absolutely tons of Grant stuff around. It's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's excellent. <clears throat> so I think maybe it would be interesting to just get like a bit of background, like who is because there's going to be listeners who have heard us reference Kenneth Grant a lot in the show, but. Um, don't actually really know who he is so maybe we could go into a kind of a biography of of, of Kenneth Grant himself oh uh, yeah yeah sure um Kenneth Grant was born in 1924 in Ilford um he again I think that um he was interested in the occult pretty much all of his life and in 1939 um, Grant and a friend, <clears throat> Grant and a friend were um, in London, um, Charing Cross Road, and they came across uh, a bookstore outside. And one of the books on there uh, was *Magic and Theory and Practice* by Alistair Crowley. And because Kenneth was interested in the occult, uh, he. He was very, very attracted by this. So uh, he browsed it, bought it, read it, loved it. Um, and over the next few years, just basically got as much Crowley stuff as he could um, to read. And um, he tried to he tried to uh, contact Crowley on several occasions, uh, at least uh, at at least two letters went uh, to, to Crowley, but they went to addresses in old copies of books, copies of old books and so forth. Uh, and then finally, in late 1944, responding to uh, a, fl- uh, a flyer for the Book of Thoth, he did make contact with Crowley and went down to see him uh, in December 1944 at the Bell Inn, Aston Clinton, and they hit it off very well. Shortly after that, Crowley, Crowley moved to um, Hastings, to his final uh, lodging room at Hastings. And um, after, a couple, after a, 
a, a couple of visits um, staying over the weekend, he became he went down to he went down to uh, to actually live at the hotel. Well, uh, he was actually living in the grounds of the hotel uh, and functioning as Crowley's secretary in exchange for um, magical and mystical uh, tuition. Uh, he left a little bit earlier than anticipated, uh, and uh, then soon after Crowley's death. In 1947, um, in 1949, he and his wife met Austin Austin Spare, um, whose works Grant's been very familiar with since the early 1940s when he first came across a copy of the book Pleasure. So um, they again they got on very well, in, very well indeed. Grant rated Spare very very highly. Uh, loved his um, loved his artwork, and he and Steffi actually helped uh, Austin a lot with um, with well, really day to day comestibles. But in addition, giving um, a lot of help with organising uh, the various exhibitions um, that Spare put on between <coughs> 1949 and 1956. Or 1955. Um, and then Grant had always been very, very keen on, on Indian mysticism um, in general and uh, Tantra. And he, he studied that. Kenneth actually, when he became interested in something, it was very intense and he just plunged into it. So he would absorb an awful lot of information very quickly and become um, almost an expert very, very quickly um, as well. And then uh, in 1955, he founded New Isis Lodge. Um, from 59 to about 63, he and Steffi were publishing the Carfax monographs. Um, and then he he made friends with John Simons, uh, Crowley's literary executor, and in the mid-1960s, uh, they decided between them um, that they would that they would republish uh, as much Crowley as much of Crowley as they could, and also publish um, material that was previously unpublished. And uh, probably the most notable books that they did was. Um, the Confessions of Alistair Crowley, which came out in 1969, and The Magical Record of the Beast 666, which was um, early 1970s. Um, Kenneth had always been an inspiring writer. He'd, al he'd always been writing, whether it was poetry, short stories, um, books on, on magic, um, and, and so forth. And he'd started a study of Crowley in the late 1960s, and this actually became the magical revival of Alistair Crowley and the Hidden God, and um, and then basically over a span of about 30 years, uh, he produced the um, the Typhonian trilogies, and then once the Typhonian trilogies were over, he um, he produced very, uh, various other bits and pieces like. Uh, he 
he published a lot of the novels that, that he'd written in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Uh, and he put together things like At the Feet of Guru, which was a collection of um, a collection of essays on Indian mysticism that he had published in various Indian magazines uh, throughout the 50s and 60s. And then he and I, whilst he was still alive, we produced second editions of uh, Outside the Service of Time and then um, The Magical Revival. And, uh, well, he finally died in early, early 2011. And basically, since his death, his work has been kept in print. And it, his work is becoming increasingly popular as the years go by, which is uh, very heartening. Yeah, it's, it's really... Uh, so what was Kenneth Grant like a, as a person? What was his kind of character like? Well, when I met him, he was... Which was uh, in the mid-70s. It was just kind of changing the way... He'd been very, he'd been very, very gregarious in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And he was never a well man. So he started kind of pulling his horns in from the mid-1970s. I liked him a lot. I found it, well, I mean, obviously he knew a lot. Um, knew a lot. Uh, we shared, you know, similar interests. Um, I actually found him a very kind, witty man. But I was always aware that he was an extremely private man and that he only kind of revealed to me what he wanted what he wanted um, what he wanted me to see yeah i mean i liked him a lot but i as i say i was always aware that there were huge depths there um he was the most private he was the most private person that i've ever come across in my life actually and um I found it a bit strange um, in the early in the early in the early nineteen eighties. Uh, I, I found it very odd, but you just accept people as they are, basically, don't you? But yeah, I liked him. I liked him a lot. Um, old, but he he was very very strong minded, very strong willed. Um, after I'd known him for. A few years, I was able to just discuss matters with him and change his mind about various things um, on occasion. But uh, he was very, 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 very strong will. I think. Uh, I think uh, Ken, you you came close to interviewing Mr. Grant himself. Yeah, we we had a mutual contact and we came very close to um, to potentially having it was going to be quite a big deal we we're gonna this is because of this podcast been going for a very long time um and this is back in 2011 it must have been it was just before he died just before he passed away um we would we were in a discussion with him and we were gonna actually interview him because he just didn't seem to be interviewed ever like you say he was incredibly um private um, but we had a mutual, quite close friend, um, and he'd kind of brokered this thing between us. It was so, it was so close to happening, and then he he fell incredibly ill, didn't he? Towards the end, I remember. Uh, yeah, well, he'd been sort of <clears throat> his health was never the best. Actually, uh, he suffered from asthma uh, all all his life, um, and I, I mean, at one time, at one time. Uh, he and I used to meet every month or so, but then as he got ill, 
it became less and less so. Yeah, I remember that was the concern that because we we even spoke about doing it as a written interview at one point, you know, like it would be written out um, because he was concerned about breathing problems and all kinds of things. So, Yeah, it would have been a written interview anyway, um, Ken, because he didn't have a computer. No, ever. yeah, yeah. I think we were going to try and do it on the phone with him uh, at one point and then, um, yeah, anyway, it was really sad because it would have been great to have, um, you know, like to, because there's not many there's not much kind of interviewee type material with him, is there? It's um... No, there's not. Do you know, the only one that I'm aware of is, um, and I only know about it because I came across it in his diaries, but um, soon after the publication of the Magical Revival in 1972, uh, he was interviewed on BBC Radio London. And then, um, and then highlights of that interview uh were sort of in the radio <coughs> in the radio for pick of the week uh a few days later oh wow but, uh, yeah and <coughs> steffi grant did try with the bbc see years later if they got a copy but back in those days the bbc just weren't keeping tapes so um unfortunately that's that's gone. That's lost, um, lost the time. There was, some, there was some chap in America who, who was trying to track it down, but frankly, I don't think it's got a hope in hell because, you know, I mean, even some episodes of Doctor Who have gone. So <laughs> probably, oh, yeah. you know, an issue with Kenneth would be small bear compared to yeah. that you know, in BBC terms. Oh, trust us, we know that uh, far too well, the Doctor Who <laughs> side of things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah it's and of course, uh, I mean, an, I mean, an awful lot of stuff has gone. <coughs> I very frequently listen to uh, Radio 4 Extra and some of, for instance, Hancock Half Hours that they broadcast are only there because somebody somebody at home taped them. You mm. know? Yeah, yeah. Now, my partner recently, she bought the Hancock collection and it's it's crazy. Yeah, you're right. Some of them are like home recordings, aren't they? Rather than yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's sad, really. It's... Uh, yeah, God knows what they were thinking about then. But uh, let's talk a little bit about Steffi as well, because I, I think she's often overlooked um, yeah, when it comes to when it comes to Kenneth Grant's work. And I think she's, you know, her her artwork in particular is incredibly important in the kind of history of the that kind of magical revival era, isn't it? You know, it's it kind is. of yeah, it is. Well, basically, um, Steffi was a German German national. Uh, born in December 1923 in Berlin. Um, she, her, her family were Jewish. They were secular. They weren't Orthodox, but um, as far as the Nazis were concerned, they didn't actually differentiate. And so they basically had to flee uh, Germany. And so she came the whole family came over more or less on the eve of the Second World War. Um, and she, uh, she, she came to London. And then she met Kenneth Grant, I think, I think it was 1941, might have been 1940. Um, and they just kind of fell for each other. Um, and uh, Steffi, it, it, it's curious, you know, towards the end of her life, I asked Steffi one day, I said, um, Steffi, were you interested in the cult when you're 
interest in Germany, expecting her to say yes. And to my amazement, she said no, she wasn't. So it was actually meeting Kenneth. But it's actually meeting Kenneth that sort of that sort of lit the blue touch paper for her, as it were. And it, it, it really is an extraordinary thing because her artwork, you know, it, it's so concentrated. You just wouldn't you just wouldn't imagine, would you, that um, she was fairly new to it. No, it's so um, you just see it in you know if, if you ever see books about the occult kind of thing, is it, without fail you see a Steffi Grant um, piece of art in there, don't you? And it's a, uh, it's mm. yeah, and it's such it's such you know we were talking about it the other day, weren't we? We we love the Carfax monographs in particular. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. and uh, yeah, she's she's definitely she definitely like I said feels like an overlooked figure <laughs> when it comes to. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, well, basically, I mean. As far as the Carfax monographs uh, go, about half of the monographs are by her. As you say, her, her influence is uh, very often overlooked, but uh, yeah. she's right. I mean, I mean those, those essays of hers in the Carfax monograph, they're beautifully written. And, and with the Carfax monograph, I understand there was like a sort of an interest, the Beatles had an interest, which... Is, well... Basically, yeah, the story about that, the story about that is uh, one day on, on Lash Town about, what, uh, about 15 years ago, I think it was, um, somebody posted uh, to say that um, in the film Magical Mystery Tour, um, there were sections in there whereby, the Carfax, whereby issues of the Carfax monograph were actually pinned up. Um, to the magician's lair, and this person who spotted it, he he showed a few stills, uh, and it was so. It was quite amazing, really, because I mean, this was Magical Mystery Tour, nineteen sixty-seven. I mean, I think I think Kenneth Grant at that time was uh, quite quite famous um, um, amongst uh, London occult circles. He was uh, a very obscure character. Um, outside those circles, so it's kind of, kind of quite amazing that they're there, really. You know, in that film. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting. Uh, one thing I'm really interested in is um, Kenneth Grant's relationship with Craig. I, I, I bought recently. I had this amazing, strange slightly magical experience actually i went to um uh the scoob bookshop they have like there's two two bookshops now there's the original one and then there's the they have this smaller one i went oh, in yeah. there i went in there because i knew scoob used to put out his books and um they yeah. there's a particular one i was after called remembering alistair crowley um i went in there and asked about it and uh they were like oh no we haven't seen one of those in ages and i thought oh that's a shame i'll have to try and track it down online and then went to the older shop and then this lady came running in and she said, I've just found, I've just been down to the basement and found the final wrapped copy of Remembering oh. Alistair Crowley. And I, I was like, oh my God. And they, ch- and they charged me the original price as well, which I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. So yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I've got a, a particular connection to that book. I love it. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is lovely. It yeah. Is lovely. Well, one thing, the, the kind of relationship between Crowley and Kenneth Grant, um, it feels like Crowley was almost slightly using grant as like a a person to pick up his cigarettes and things doesn't it, at some points you know uh, yeah, obviously but... they had a deeper relationship than that but you do get this impression that crowley was um uh you know in need of uh 
someone to do his bidding almost. Doesn't it? It's, uh, yeah, it's, but I mean, by that step, by that time, you know, he was old, he was ill, <clears throat> he, he was a drug addict. Um, he probably needed somebody to fetch and carry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's fascinating. It's um. So let's talk about because post Crowley, obviously, um, Kenneth Grant became involved with the ATO didn't he well I think he was already involved with the ATO but he, uh, he had a, mo- a more senior role in the ATO didn't he um, post Crowley and I- I'm really interested in this kind of new ISIS Lodge kind of era of of Kenneth Grant when when it was part of the ATO and then I- I'm interested in the kind of schism from the ATO so okay. if you can talk about okay. that okay okay um, this uh, I mean I'll go into a bit of history as regards that then because it, it's very interesting um Basically, whilst whilst he was whilst Kenneth was at Netherwood, or it might even have been been before on one of his previous visits to Crowley, um, he became a member of the OTO, but sort of it it wasn't recorded in it. You know, he didn't get a certificate. It wasn't recorded in documents. Um, however, in 1948, he he was in touch with Carl Germer, and Carl Germer Carl Germer basically, you know, gave him full documentation, certificate, etc. Now, the problem with the OTO comes about, I think, because Grant Grant was interested in what you might call the magical element in the OTO. Um, And so, uh, well, I mean, there was never any question of him becoming Crowley's successor. Crowley wouldn't have done that because he was too young. He was too um, untested. Grant, Crowley, though, did have a very high high regard um, for Grant. Uh, He had some reservations about that project as well, but he he had high regard for um, Grant's intensity and Grant's interest in in magic and mysticism. Now, so therefore, after the death of Crowley, he was working for a while. I mean, he he never met he never met Carl Gurman, uh, Crowley's uh, nominated successor, um, but. Gurman did actually give empower him to open a lodge, etc., etc., etc. Gurman never liked New Isis Lodge. Um, in 1955, uh, Ken sent him a copy of the manifesto, which he took he took grave exception to. Grave exception, indeed. Uh, I, I, I think the reason for it is uh, Gurman uh, was. His, his main concern was to uphold uh, Crowley's, what he saw as Crowley's doctrine. And he saw, he saw Kenneth Grant as, um, as introducing innovations and uh, tampering things uh, by his life. And they had uh, a very, very frank exchange of views um, about Manifesto of New Isis Lodge. Uh, Germa demanded that Kenneth withdraw the manifesto of the United States Lodge. Kenneth refused. Germa expelled him, and the rest is history. 
Um, Kenneth always had, I was going to say he always had a poor, he had a poor opinion of Gurma. In some ways he didn't because I, the magical record of B666 is actually, is actually dedicated um, to Carl Gurma. So, you know, he, he, he did see some positives about Gurma, but, but he didn't think Gurma was really interested in magic, certainly, certainly not in forging ahead. And so basically, after the expulsion by Gurma, um, Kenneth just refused to accept it and just carried on as he was. Um, and so hence, hence you get this thing, you get the OTO wars, say, in the 1970s, when you have um, the Caliphate OTO in the States um, proceeding on the basis of uh, documents that Murtry had from Crowley. Um, and you have Grant, who, who considered himself to be the head of the OTO, and... <clears throat> Was always was always interested in the magic, not particularly bothered um, about about charters and documents and so forth. And uh, he just had a completely different vision um, from Gurman. And uh, it's quite interesting. I've always thought it was very very interesting that New Isis Lodge, Kenneth, Kenneth gives the, um, the date of it as 1955 to 1962. And I find that interesting because, of course, 62 was the year that Goma died. Mm, that's intriguing, isn't it? And, uh, I mean, no, I've, I've always thought that, you know, if it produces, it's very, the current, if the current sort of, um, it's fertile and produces all these different sort of fascinating blooms, then that's, a, that's always a, a, yeah, it's a compliment to it. My understanding of New Isis, though, it's not so much the goddess, it's, it's a, meant to represent it's a you uh, uh, forgive my ignorance but it it's uh, sort of a planet or something outside the surface. well you see that's kind of that's uh very much a very much a moot point new isis the the whole new the whole new isis current didn't actually come out of out of nowhere kenneth seems to have picked up the idea um from the the, the regular magazines of the German occultist uh, Eugen Groscher. And Gr Groscher went so far as to not only name this transplutonic uh, planet Isis, but also came up with um, a symbol for it, um, came up with its um, uh, period of uh, orbit around the sun, all sorts of things. And Kenneth had very recently come out of his intense plunge into a fight of the dancer and uh, his kind of love of the wit, rekindled, etc. came across this and it suddenly sparked off another epiphany. And in the early months of 1955, he just uh, he just just produced a whole new whole new series of uh, great rituals. Um, astonishingly astonishingly active and Kenneth told me Kenneth told me actually that although although the finish date was given as 1962 in fact um, he and a few colleagues carried on working until the mid-60s I mean 
I think there's a lot more to New Isis Lodge than the anecdotes that you get uh, scattered throughout Hades Fountain. And uh, I, I often think that what Kenneth Grant really means with that period of New Isis Lodge is the interior changes and the, the realisations that he, the, that he was going through. Because absolutely everything in Kenneth Grant really springs from that period, uh, 1955 to 1962, which seems to have been a real catalyst. Yeah, it's definitely, um, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of working my way through the books as you're releasing them <laughs> at the moment because uh-huh. uh, I've been somewhat guilty of uh, of being somewhat of a crony elitist in the past and now I'm oh, yeah. uh, and, and that and now I'm uh, I'm sort of slightly We've better now yeah but I'm actually I find his books genuinely quite exciting to read and um, yeah there's a, I, I sort of skipped forward a bit um, to Hakate's Fountain because I'd heard stories of trapeze artists and all sorts of uh, yeah, really, really yeah. interesting stuff and it is fa- it's like you know it's it's definitely um you know he's, he's it feels like he's definitely took a lot of the ritual side of things and the the actual true magical side of things to the extreme didn't he i mean compared to some other um you know occultists he's definitely and he, and he did record it in a really you know really interesting way as well and uh, yeah I, i'm you know that's a, a compliment to him actually I, I i do i do find him like really really exciting to read oh yeah yeah me too me too yeah yeah um so out of interest so obviously we've got new isis lodge and then um and then for a long time there was the typhonian oto and which is now the typhonian order um yeah so obviously there was a a bit of drama there wasn't there as well and well i mean to be awfully honest the reason the reason for the change um from typhonian oto to um to uh, the Typhonian Order is because, quite simply, um, it just wasn't possible anymore to dodge the bullets uh, from the from the people over in America from the Caliphate OTO. You know, um, I basically started publishing actually opposed uh, a trademark uh, to trademark uh, the name OTO um, over here. In the in in the early two thousands, I mean, I felt, to be honest, that it was almost certainly too late to actually try and do something like that. But I also felt duty bound to have a bash um, as well, and uh, actually lost that case. And you know, it was made very very clear to me by, shall we say, a certain person that unless we actually uh, took OTO out of our name. Um, there would be a lot more, uh, shall we say, shall we say, financial penalties uh, to be faced. So um, that, so we we took the opportunity, but I mean, it is just a name, you know, Ken. Mm. Really, it is. It's the same order. I remember once, um, many years ago, uh, reading something by Kenneth, and I had a chat with him. And he, and, you know, and said, I think you're conflating, Kenneth, uh, New Isis Lodge with your earlier order, IBA, that he and Stephen founded um, in about 
before. And he said to me, he said to me, well, Michael, as far as I'm concerned, they're all phases of they're all phases of the same order. They're different phases that we go through. And he and he was perfectly right. And so in the Typhonian order, for instance, um, it's basically basically the Typhonian OTO, which was basically another phase of New Isis Lodge, which was basically another phase of IBA. I've never heard of IBA. Could you talk a bit about that, please? Yeah, sure. Um, I can, actually. Um, it was founded... Uh, Kenneth and Steffi and a friend of theirs, and it was about 43, 44, I can't remember the precise name. And interestingly enough, um, they, was, they were still running it at the same time as, um, as they were running uh, the British branch of the OTO on the basis of a charter from, from Carl Germer. Um, we don't know too much about IBA, to, uh, to be honest, um, one of the plates in Hector's Fountain is actually the frontispiece from, from a manifesto um, of, the, uh, of the IBA, but that's kind of, that's, that's sort of all, that, all of it that exists, unfortunately. So I can't really go too much, too much more in, into that. I, I was just very lucky um, soon after Kemet died, um, Steffi, Steffi gradually gave me access to more and more of Kenneth's papers and, um, and sort of let, let me and someone else just really get on with um, indexing them and cataloging correspondence. And so I learned an awful lot, you know, um, I learned an awful lot about things, about, well, I say an awful lot, as you might have gathered from what I've said, there's not not too much is known about uh, about IBA and uh, uh, <clears throat> Steffi couldn't remember too much about it to be honest either. Uh, one of the other things that's always fascinated me about Gr Kenneth Grant is the um, his relationship with John Simons is um, it, and actually John Simons himself and his relationship with Crowley is also pretty fascinating. He he certainly didn't seem too keen on Crowley, and I've always wondered why. He ended up as the kind of executor of his uh, of his um, his work. Is it? It's yeah, it is extraordinary, really. Um, there were two literary executors, um, Oliver Wilkinson and John Simons. Um, basically, John Simons came along in Crowley's life, kind of quite late, and Simons was uh, the editor of um, a London magazine called the Lilliputia. Or, or, or something like that, and um, he he got at least one article by Crowley into one of his issues of the of Lilliput or Lilliputian, whatever it's called. Um, he told he told uh, Crowley that he'd like to do a biography of him after his death, and so I I, I think. I think that's the main reason, to be honest, why he was made literary executive, because he, as you said, he seemed to have a very poor opinion of Crowley. Um, and I, in some ways, I think that Kenneth and he made a bit of an odd couple because um, I don't think that I don't I don't think that John Simons ever lost his uh, contempt, really, I think, 
for, for Cronin. And, and of course, Kenny Plant was devoted to Cronin. Um, but John didn't really know very much. All of the information essentially came from Kenneth, you know, in all of the books that they did. I mean, I think there's a famous thing. Uh, they both do, they both do um, a forward or introduction, I think, to um, to um, the confessions. And, you know, John Simons sort of writes quite a bit. And uh, Kenneth is fairly short and sweet to the point. You know, it says, I think it, it's fairly, it's fairly plain uh, from uh, John, from, from, from John's introduction that he doesn't accept the law of Philema, and I do. And that was about it, really. You know, but essentially, though, uh, with um, with the confessions, um, almost all of it, you know, notes and research and so forth, would have been done by Kenneth. Uh, that, that sort of brings up another point of, of interest with, with the Typhonian Order, which was um, how much of it, because obviously Kenneth's work diverged quite significantly from Crowley's um uh, more traditional yeah. philema, I suppose you could say. Um, so, how does does the Typhonian Typhonian order kind of still consider itself a philemic group, or yes, um, yes and, and, what's, and what's its relationship to the Book of the Law? Would you say? Well, basically, uh, we we still we still accept the Book of the Law. You know, nothing's changed there. You know, it it's still. I mean, I think that. We don't have the same kind of canonical devotion to the book of the law um, that some Thelemites do. We don't, for instance, perform the Gnostic Mass, which you know, for a lot for a lot of Thelemites, particularly over in the States, that would immediately just bar you from from well, <clears throat> certainly certainly from considering yourself uh, the OTO. But I mean, I mean, there are some. There are some parts of the book of the law that I've just always found very, very difficult indeed. Uh, I, I mean, for instance, you know, I'm socialist by nature, and I find some of some of the some of the kind of fairly brutal, shall we say, aristocratic stuff to be a bit hard to take. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, we could elaborate on this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I've always thought that the um, the the, the, the the angel that Jacob wrestled with until dawn was Awaz. That was his. That was his real name. And and being a Thelemite is somebody who's actively struggling with the book of the law. But uh, that's just purely my own personal thing on it. I when I think of uh, Grant, I always relate him to H. P. Lovecraft. I'm and I'm fascinated to hear what the how that how that influences how that influenced Grant and how it influenced the Typhonian order today. Okay. Well. Basically, you can't look at Lovecraft in isolation. <laughs> Kenneth's had a huge attraction to um, to um, uh, occult and weird um, novels. Uh, I, I mean, for instance, possibly his very, very favourite writer was Arthur, was Arthur Macken. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Macken's work. Uh, it just so happens when... Uh, when it comes to Lovecraft, uh, that you know, Lovecraft's name is, is probably larger, and uh, 
more remembered. I I think though, in my opinion, um, some people get hold of the wrong end of the stick when it comes to Lovecraft um, and Grant. Grant's main thesis really on Lovecraft, I think, is set out in a chapter in The Magic Revival, Barbara's Names uh, and the Occasion, where he draws up, um, there's, this, there's this interesting comparative table um, of kind of central elements in what you might call the Lovecraft, the Lovecraftian notice, the Cthulhu notice, no, notice, and, and, uh, and Crowley's, for want of a better word, cult. It's, it's kind of very interesting. Uh, the key to it, I think, um, the key to it basically is that the thinking behind it is that there's just one consciousness. We're not loads and loads of isolated consciousness. And, and, and very often, the writer, he might think that he's just, he or she is just inventing something. But actually, they're drawing upon inspiration from, from the depths of consciousness, from, from the depths of imagination. So therefore, um, that kind of table of correspondences or affinities between Lovecraft and Crowley isn't as far-fetched as one might think if you accept that, that, that these writers are drawing to a greater or lesser extent to um, to an unconscious uh, extent, probably um, on I don't know, um, possibly the Jungian collective unconscious. I was going to say, yeah, I mean that's that's a classical sort of uh, Jungian perspective on it. But mm. but but and and uh, I suppose with uh, the relationship with Macam and Lovecraft, I mean, what's happened? I mean, Macam was far more. Uh, successful in his, his in his life actually well known and lovecraft mm. has been revived amazingly i i never thought in my life in my life i'd see uh lovecraft's works published under the penguins classic um, oh really? Thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's not true. I mean, I'm, 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 I, I love Lovecraft, and um, I insist yeah. that I insist on in reading. I've collected all those lurid seventies uh, paper. Oh, they're, they're great. Aren't they? uh, with the, I, I, I don't, I won't read it under any other cover. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm very fussy about that. I mean, he, he, he's a great. Uh, I, I've read every every one, and he's a great, um, mm-hmm. he's a great writer. But why Lovecraft? What's your favourite? Uh, yeah, what? Yeah, what's my favourite? What's the one that lives with me the most? Mm. Ah, ah, I know what it is. It's um, outside the. It's the the shadow. No, outside the the shadow from out of time. It's called time. What's that one with the yeah, great yeah. race of Yith? Oh, yeah, and I won't give the ending away, but there's. The, the uh, there's a I like the the reveal at the end. Actually, mm-hmm. that one mentions uh, Crowley. There's a character, uh, Lovecraft actually mentions a, 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 sin, a you know a, a mysterious yeah. sinister character. It's not for that reason at all. It's just I just happened to like that particular story. Um, but what is it in the in Lovecraft in Lovecraft's narrative that spoke to Grant more vividly? Than... I think probably it was the sheer imagination of the stories. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean so <clears throat> to be honest, I'm, I'm not that interested in the, in what you, you might call the pan, pantheon and things like that. What I am interested in is 
the rich imagination um, of Lovecraft. So <clears throat> many, many years ago, uh, I, I, I wrote a book I, and it was really interesting because um, you, you, you've probably heard you probably heard that a lot of the a lot that Lovecraft drew uh, upon vivid dreams for his books, and this and this one, this book, it would actually it would actually have uh, an account by Lovecraft of his dream, and then it would be juxtaposed with the short story that it inspired and uh really really interesting really interesting to read that yeah which character was it that there's a particular character is it nala fotep one of them where he he dreamt that he a friend of his came running up to him and said beware it, it was a really creepy actually his own description of 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 this um experience in this dream is actually is it's told in a you know obviously in a lovecraft way but it's <laughs> there's he has this particularly vivid dream of a friend warning him about this character this shadowy character and he couldn't stop dreaming about him and uh yeah i i, I found that really well which one was it you you'll know which one was it nala fotep or um, it sounds like it yeah <laughs> yeah the, the sort of shadowy dark character yeah this one but yeah but anyway sorry that was just a side note but <laughs> yeah. wasn't nala fotep the the goat of a thousand young. Oh, maybe it was definitely. No, no, that's that's uh, no, that, no. <laughs> uh, no, no, uh, no, <laughs> no. This is the one with the long red tentacle instead of a head. That's that's, and he was like the messenger of the gods. He's like a sort of mercurial kind of messenger of the gods type, mm. psychopompic, yeah, thing. Uh, thing being the operative word <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and also as well i mean in the in the sort of in the cthulhu mythos i mean at the center of that of course is cthulhu and um and you know you have got there the idea of something dreaming beneath it's very much like atlantis isn't it, it calls on i'm surprised you know so it reminds me of the theosophists with the ideas of atlantis you've got this sort of lost city you know and the, and this monster dreaming beneath the beneath the waves it's great to it's it's great that lots that cthulhu is far more well known to people now he's, he's sort of entered um people's understanding of things and and uh i know that um i mean august derlith he, he he ran with lots of lovecraft things but he had a he had a particular he had a very different take i mean lovecraft was a kind did, of yeah yeah sort of lovecraft was a kind of nihilist in a essentially and but derlith was a catholic and the idea of good and evil in the sort of classical sense of the word is 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 more apparent and um yeah. i don't think it's, it's, it's not as imaginative and i think he he, no. he, he conceived of cthulhu as, as not as imaginatively and as a kind of sort of watery elemental thing i mean there's an element of that of, I mean, an element of that <laughs> there's an element of that <laughs> but there's a there's a bit more to the idea i i, I love cthulhu i i feel Let's talk about some other influences on Kenneth Grant because uh, one of them in particular we've mentioned him already, um, but you know he's a, a very, another kind of prominent character within the occult who again seems to have had a bit of a renaissance recently, which is uh, Austin Osmond Spare. Um, so let's talk a bit about the relationship between Grant and Spare because I, I believe it was Steffi that actually introduced them, or that they met via Steffi rather than directly, you know, via well, Kenneth. Yeah. Well, basically, what happened was um, in the early 1940s, maybe 41, something like that, um, Michael Houghton, who then ran 
who founded the um, the Atlantis Bookshop, uh, he showed Kenneth a copy of the Book of Pleasure. And Kenneth was enraptured by that. Um, and much the same as he'd done with Crowley, he says about reading as much spare uh, by getting hold of as much spare as he could. But for some reason, he assumed that spare was long dead. Um, I, 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 he never really knew why uh, he actually thought that. So, um, so they were both interested, um, Kenneth and Steffi, in spare. And, but, you know, like I say, they assumed spare was dead. And then what happened basically was um, a friend of theirs, a friend of theirs came across uh, a copy of a magazine article about Spare and a few photographs of him um, in his sort of hovel of the room with some cats and so forth, and uh, showed it to Kenneth and Stephanie. And so basically, uh, Steffi wrote, Steffi wrote uh, to Spare care of the magazine, um, <clears throat> asked if she could come and see him, uh, which, uh, which, uh, which was fine, and she did. <coughs> and then uh, the next time they met, she took Kenneth along. And, uh, well, basically, Kenneth and Spare got on very, very well indeed. But so that, that is, that is the basis about how they met. Yes, you know, it, it, it's perfectly right. It, it was Steffi that actually, uh, once they realised he was alive, that actually uh, went out and uh, and sought him out as well. Mm. And so what kind of influence, though, would you say? There was obviously a relationship built there, and uh, Kenneth wrote a lot about um spare in his books uh, i was just wondering like how would you describe the the kind of influ- the kind of relationship between the two of them and the kind of influence spare had on grant's work um well basically um i believe i mean it's pretty evident to me talking to talking to kenneth about spare and then after his death um talking to Steffi about Spare, that they both loved Spare very much. Um, I personally think that Spare was the bigger influence on, on Grant's outlook, development, and his work than Crowley was, actually. Um, it's kind of curious because, you know, Crowley is mentioned a lot more throughout his books than Spare is, but um, I, I just think, actually, that that he made much the greater influence. Plus, you know, he knew Spare. He knew Spare for a lot longer. You know, um, effectively, he spent about a year, less than a year, being told, um, you know, sort of meeting Crowley for a few times and then going down to live as his secretary. Um, and also the relationship was a completely different one because there was a formality about Crowley. Um, you know, you could you could slap uh, you could slap spare on his back, you know, in front of me, and it would be fine. You wouldn't dream of doing that with Crowley. So it's a very 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 different relationship. But uh, he found a great affinity. I think between his interest in the advice of the 
uh, and spare. He wrote, Kenneth wrote um, a very, very fine um, essay. Well, it, it's a book really um, about spare. That he completed in Spare's lifetime, showed it to Spare, uh, and Spare liked it. And um, unfortunately, the version of it that that Spare would have seen hasn't survived. What has survived is two later typescripts, but it shows a man who who has really plunged to the heart um, of Spare's work. And of course, and of course, he had the opportunity of discussing it with. Um, Spare as well, because um, Spare's work is is um, it can be very very obscure, but you know once you actually find your way into it, 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 it it's really dynamite stuff. I had to buy a book. Uh, I think it was it, the Book of Pleasure I bought originally, and I, I it I have to be honest, it was a it was it was too. Uh, <laughs> uh it was too uh i just couldn't, yes, I couldn't find a very, way in um but... it's, very, it's very very difficult do you know what i i was like that for years with the pleasure and then and then some publisher approached me and you know to write an essay on it and said you know just take just take just take a couple of things and write about that and so i i found that that actually gave me a way in you know i i, I cracked it but the problem the problem Problem with, with with the book of pleasure, though, is that is that his fluency and his articulacy with um, with drawing, painting, etc., just wasn't matched um, by 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 you know writing. You know, I'm sorry to say, and and, and part of the problem with the book of pleasure is sheer way that it's written. You know, you know, sort of. Uh, strange punctuation, strange syntax, a love of obscure words. It's very, very cumbersome. I personally prefer his later works, the works that were published in Zoss Speaks. Um, I find he's a lot clearer by then. There is a volume, isn't there, that came out maybe fairly recently? I, I picked it up myself. It's like a sort of um, book of pleasure for dummies almost. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of book of pleasure for plain English. Yeah, plain yeah. English. Yeah, I, I don't like I don't like the approach at all. You know, I sort of come from school school four that you just kind of persevere with something. And uh, I do know I do know the guy that wrote it, and I have had I have have had conversations uh, with him about it. Yes. Well, hopefully, yeah, yeah. I mean, it will. I mean, it will. I mean, it will show people that you can, you can, you if you work hard at it, you can, you can. Yeah, you I mean, you know, that's all. There's an argument after all for saying that, you know, if you've read the book Pleasure Aunty Times and can't get anywhere, then <clears throat> is there really any harm in reading a book of pleasure in plain English and then going back to the book of pleasure, mm. you know, armed with, um, you know, because it, it, you know, it might have been a eureka moment for, you know. Yeah. I mean, what I, yeah, I would be, I would be, very cautious if if somebody read the one better with the lubricated book of pleasure and and then they and then they thought oh well i've read that now i don't need to go to that you need to go to the fountain head with all these things and, yeah, yeah no i i feel that way too 
and um, another big influence, well, another person that Grant was interested in presenting to the world was uh, Fraud Arcade, wasn't it? And, uh, and, yes. and, yeah, and the two of my favourite Starfire books, I must say, at this point, at this juncture, is the, the collection of, um, as well as the Carfax monographs, personally, uh, is also the, the very recent publication, very handsome very handsome and very exquisitely edited, I must say, for somebody like me uh, of, the, <laughs> of, the, of the letters of the letters uh, regarding about and you know that that correspondence with Joe York and, and, and yeah yeah well <clears throat> basically basically uh, Kenneth wasn't that familiar initially with um, with Arkad with with Arkad's work. What happened was though. At the time, at the time that Arkad was writing to Gerald York, basically, basically York wrote to Arkad in early 1948 to say that he, that he was ordering his papers and wasn't a copy of a certain book, a certain document of Arkad's in there, and including supplying copy. <clears throat> and so basically at this time, 1948, 1949, uh, Kenneth and Gerald York uh, used to cooperate in, uh, in, in, in producing uh, typed copies of what they thought were the really important items of the Crohn's work before the whole thing was shipped off to Gurma um, under the terms of Crowley's will. And so... Um, and so, you know, <clears throat> he would have discussions with York about <clears throat> some of these letters that, that were coming through from Archive. And then um, about uh, a few months after Archive died, um, York, York asked Kenneth to, um, to make a typed copy of the whole lot for him. And that's when Kenneth really started to get interested um in archive so obviously he he then went back and went through the the back catalogue the back catalogue of archive's work etc and began to take a keen interest in it i suppose i mean i'd like to have you back on at some point and do an entire show on Akkad, but um no, that's great. Could, could we um, maybe just get a little overview? I mean, you just recently published the incoming of the Aeon of Matt, I think it's called, or Mark, the book that yeah. Mark referenced. But uh, there are going to be people out there who don't know who Frater Arcad is. And could you give us like a kind of potted, <coughs> a potted uh, description of the man and 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 his um, his his work? I suppose. Arcad yes. in, a, Arcad <coughs> in a nutshell. Uh, yeah, Arcad in a nutshell. Yeah. Okay. 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 Well. Basically, um, Arkad was one of the early members of the AA, the Astrum uh, Argentium, and became um, a bit of a bit of a favourite pupil of Crowley's. And then, um, and then about around 1915, uh, I think it was 1915. Um, Akkad sort of Akkad took advantage of this um, of this um, idea that anybody could declare themselves master of the temple. Um, you know, I think it's called them. it's called the oath of the abyss. I believe. Yeah, the oath of the abyss. So he took the oath of the abyss, and um, and 
And through a, a, a weird set of circumstances, uh, Crowley recognised him as his magical son and his heir. And um, things were okay, okay for a while. But then, you know, uh, Uckert says in one of his letters to York that the Crowley's idea was that you would always do his will um, and always help him. And um, Uckard began to have his own have his own ideas, and so tension set in uh, between them. And then uh, Uckard started writing stuff, writing and publishing stuff. You know, uh, things like QBL and the Magical Arrival, which books that Crowley absolutely hated. And um, so the gap between them became quite wide. And then, and then sort of he accused Uckard quite unjustly of uh, stealing uh, a stock of books that uh, the Crowley had left in care for him. And um, they sort of, uh, they, they sort of had a, what you might call a legal separation of their of their financial affairs in 1926, and thereafter um, they would have just kind of in, in, intimate intimate um, contact. For instance, in 1936, Crowley actually wrote Crowley actually wrote to Arcade and initiated this um, this correspondence, which was you know quite good at first, but you know soon. Uh, the old, uh, the old grudges and the old accusations uh, resumed. You know about Uckard stealing his books to bring them out after, 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 after Crowley died. And um, I think the the other thing was that uh, Uckard took a great deal of interest in the early nineteen twenties in an organisation called. Um, uh, Universal Brotherhood. Yeah, Universal Brotherhood. Uh, again, which Crowley, which Crowley abhorred. Um, I think it's largely <clears throat> Crowley. Crowley had this hang up about other occult organisations. Um, you know, he thought they should all subsume into his organisation. So he saw Akkad become increasingly involved in this Universal Brotherhood, and. Um, you know, all all these things really came to this came to, as I say, this head in 1926. So, I could just carried on with his work. He, he he still had he still had a deep attachment to to Crowley's work and to Philema, and uh, he he just 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 produced um, produced his own books. You know, and as I say, there was intimate contact with Crowley, and <clears throat> it would invariably end uh, badly. And uh, and then, and that's where the incoming of that book, the incoming of the Inuit, um, comes in. When when he made contact with York in early 1948, and one of the things, I mean, one of the things that I think is fantastic. Uh, about those letters, quite apart, quite apart from this incoming of the Ian Mark business, um, is the fantastic detail that he has. You know, the 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 historical data that he's coming out with about you know his time with Crowley, and especially the time in America, uh, just fantastic, really. But 
fundamentally in 19, um, 1948, it was, um, he detected, he detected intimations of another eel um, coming in. Uh, he was a very, very sensitive man and he, it, it would really be intuition and um, this became the Ian of Mark. So there's a strange relationship between the Ian of Mark and the Mark Eon. Um, but, you know, to all intents and purposes, they, they can be seen as the same. Um, I think, you know, a lot of Thelemites found it uh, very, very hard to swallow the, the Ian of Horace, which was uh, <clears throat> thought, you know, expected to last 2,000 years or so, you know, tied to the procession of the equinoxes, etc., um, had been superseded, you know, um, you know, a mere 44 years later. But um, Crowley hadn't always, Crowley, Crowley hadn't always had this idea uh, that the eons were tied to the procession of the equinoxes and therefore covered specific spans of time. And um, I've never, never, uh, he was always a mystic. Now, I don't think he ever accepted this idea of uh, the eons having spans of time. I think he saw them really as uh, levels of initiation, as, as indeed I think Crowley did initially. Yeah, I mean, I must, I, 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 I must have encountered um, Arkad and his work, um, and his, and his, in his particular role in the sort of. Uh, uh, Crowley story uh, through Kenneth Grant originally actually and then uh, but what I'm not so clear about what about Jack Parsons how what was Kenneth Grant's take on Jack Parsons he's a character that has appeared again he's another character that is part of the story who's become more prominent or well there's there's more of him <laughs> there's more of him around at the, it seems at the moment I mean obviously these days communication is a lot lot simpler via the internet email etc 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 but sort of um, after Crowley died, uh, what was going on in America, in California, with the old Agape Lodge, was something that people didn't really know very much about. Uh, I mean, for instance, in 1955, um, the Grants were friends for a while with uh, Kenneth Anger, and Kenneth Anger had known Marjorie, Marjorie Cameron, um, in fact, uh, he lived on and off with uh, Marjorie Cameron, I believe. And, um, and so, and obviously, obviously, Gerald York had got all the press cuttings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, when Parsons, you know, the Parsons had blown himself up and, uh, <clears throat> and so forth. And um, I don't think, to be honest, I don't think that he had, too much time for Jack Parsons. I mean, sort of like Jack Parsons, Jack Parsons, uh, because he died young, you know, there is a specific glamour that attaches to people that die young, um, essentially. And he, he was articulate, you know, and some of his essays uh, are very fine. I don't think really, though, that uh, Kenneth ever sort of got got influenced by, by Jack Parsons, um, as it were, simply because I don't, don't really think uh, there was a lot to be influenced by. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he's premature 
Dev, um, there's an there's an alternative universe where he doesn't die, and then <laughs> then then the he sort of who knows what happens in that one. But one of the th one of the things I've always been curious about is that uh, one of I don't know if you're familiar with it, Mister Staley, but uh, there's a a, a, a a sort of a novel by uh, Jack Wilmanson who's the same science fiction writer, but it's a gothic novel. It's called uh, Darker Than You Think. Uh, and it's written there, which it was published originally in 1948. And there, there's an image in that of a, a naked woman with long red hair who rides on the back of this saber-toothed tiger. And Jack Parsons strongly identified that with Babylon and the Beast. And it always struck me as uh, curious or, or um, conspic conspicuous almost absence that Kenneth Grant never refers to the book because it, you would think that he'd be um, on that. You know, like a, I don't know what, but uh, you would think that would be something you'd be sort of um, you'd lap up. Yeah, but sorry, I perhaps he just never came across it. You know, perhaps it just wasn't. Perhaps it, it just wasn't an author that interested him very much. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, yeah, I mean, that's, that's that's sort of curious to me, but I don't know what to. I don't know what I don't know what the answer is. I don't know. It's a mystery. We will never know, probably. <laughs> um, so one thing I'm interested in uh, with the Typhonian Order is, um, obviously, I, I know very little about the Order, uh, and I'm kind of interested in its kind of um, its similarities, I suppose, to the existing OTO, like in terms of like how 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 is it structured? Is it an initiatory order? Is it a fraternal order? You know, I, I don't... Uh, yeah. I mean, sort of. Well, I mean, you know, uh, it still has. Um, things like, you know, first degree, second degree, third degree, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We accept the law of Selena, um, obviously require people that sort of apply to be members, uh, must uh, accept the law of Selena. Um, I've got, I've got, I've, over the years, I've had pretty good relations with Bill Breeze. Um, but there's no initiation in this was true in the Typhonian OTO and it's true in the Typhonian order. There's initiation isn't something conferred. Initiation is something um, that that just comes about as a result of magical and mystical experience. That's quite similar to the but, Temple of Set, actually, isn't it? We we were talking to um, Don Webb. In, in, oh, yeah. a, in an episode recently and it, interestingly in that um he, they said that the temple of set don't have like kind of set initiations that are performed they're kind of like it, it's almost like a you get to a certain point and that's your initiation almost you know within your magical experience and he also said that um during there was a period of time especially with things like the left hand path uh becoming a, more of a, a thing i suppose um where it almost they almost seem to happen in 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 sync. Like Kenneth Grant seemed to be um, becoming more interested in it uh, and publishing more about it at the same sort of time as the Temple of Set were also interested in it. There seemed to be this kind of current appearing, um, and that was another thing I was actually going to ask you about was was Grant's relationship with the left hand path. He seemed to really explore things like the cliff off and you know the kind of. Um, he seemed to have a real interest in the left-hand path, didn't he? There's almost a, a, a sort of, maybe maybe just a thematic link, but there seems to be this link with Grant um, 
the Temple of Set and Anton LaVey all kind of um, becoming interested in in the left-hand path and this kind of concept. Yeah, of the left-hand I path. think, though, you know, to be honest, Ken, I, I think that part, part of the problem here is the left-hand path just seems to cover such a diversity, such a wide area. I think that when Kenneth was using it, um, and I, I suppose probably a, a bit of a classic here would be Cults of the Shadow. Um, he says in there, he says in there that sort of the that he takes it be, because it, it's something about being physically on the left hand side um, of of the Shakti of the Scarlet Woman, something like that, and sort of. In, I sometimes think that in Anton Bay and things like that, it left hand path becomes this kind of more satanic thing. Um, so, you know, it's, as I say, it, it, it's one of those things that covers a wide area. It, you know, it's not just the left hand path, of course, is it? I mean, even the term black brother. Um, yeah, I think also as well, the like you say mr the stately uh, yeah yeah i think originally left hand path is a is a tantric term and 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 it's but it's in literature i'm i'm now trying to think of the the writer oh god there we go again yeah uh, i'm trying to think <laughs> of the writer he was part of the lovecraft circle actually who uses first time it's ever used in fiction the left hand path I can't remember who that is now, but uh, we're being thrown off again here. <laughs> so um, I think, um, obviously, I don't want to keep you up all night, but uh, we'd be interested. Like, what is the uh, vision for the kind of the future development of the Typhonian Order, and um, where uh, is it, you know how do you see it kind of uh, progressing into well, the future? Okay, okay. Well, I mean, like at the moment, um, I think it's fair to say that its its central gravity, its focus is on grants. You know, I think I think it's fairly natural, but it's going to be a case of 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 sort of plunging into grants work, getting to the kernel of it, and then actually moving beyond it, you know, because uh I mean <clears throat> You never know. It, it's kind of a, a bit trite to say so, but I don't think that Kenneth Grant would have, would have expected um, that his work would just assume almost a, a canonical status. I think that he would have expected that people would have would have gone beyond it, and that will happen. That will happen. There's no doubt at all about that. There's certainly a. Um tendency with thelemites to not want to push past crowley or sort of develop on crowley this is something i think about quite a lot and it it, it feels that that's may have stunted the growth of thelema overall actually that people are so obsessively um just sort of focusing on crowley and his writing rather than sort of developing it and allowing it to grow yeah it? But, yeah. yeah but you see you know i'm sure i'm sure that there are thelemic groups and there are uh Thelemic individuals that are that that do approach Crowley uh, from the point of view of inspiration, i.e., you know, i.e., buying his work and seeking to go beyond Crowley, um, and ultimately, 
that will out. You know, like to say, I think it's fair to say that we've got a lot of crowley around at the moment, but I don't think it will last. You know, um, people will go to Crowley, and I'm sure that Crowley himself would have expected it. Mm. Yeah, that's what I always say as well. I, 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 I'm, I don't imagine that Crowley wanted his his writing to stop when it did you know but yeah and there's probably there was probably a, a lot more work that he could have produced but um you know obviously health concerns and drug addiction etc probably stunted that somewhat but it, it does always um strike me that yeah it, it feels like it needs to be built upon you know um and it's quite good to hear that you said that about the typhonian order as well and this idea of like build you know, you're, you're standing on the shoulders of giants, really, aren't you, and, and building upon yeah. it. Uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, kind of like, you know, that thing about standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, why does one stand on the shoulders of giants? Well, one does one does it um, so that you can absorb what's there. You see, you see, I personally think that this is what all occultists do, whether, con- whether consciously or unconsciously. No, I, I think that, we all take influences from um, diversity of sources and we, as it were, um, synthesize it through our own mystical and magical experience um, and something inherent comes about, you know, and, and sort of and other people, it will be, you know, what, what I've done, for instance, you know, what anybody else has done um, will be one influence amongst several. But, you know, that's a crucial thing, isn't it? You know, you can actually you can actually uh, liken it to, say, an artist, if you like. Um, you've got a perfect, perfect example there because, I mean, sort of all artists, you know, um, all artists draw on the work, obviously not literally, all artists are inspired to some degree by the work of other artists, you know, there's almost a sort of, um, well, I, I don't know uh, what uh, what it is precisely there, but they sort of, they, they, they rarely produce their body in isolation, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of different influences, like, like for instance, one time Spare went through a beardsome phase, you know, that, that's undeniable. Um, went through went through a Japanese phase. Um, he sort of event- eventually, well, fairly quickly, started producing. You know, uh, his own innate, unique uh, vision. But we're all influenced by by others, and we all draw on others. Um, I was wondering. Um... How do you see the influence of Grant's books on the modern magical landscape? Do you uh, do you see it continuing to influence, or I mean, like you're saying, there's a bit of a renaissance going on? But how do you see his kind of overall influence on the kind of modern magical landscape? Well, personally, I I I think it's a matter of I think it's a matter of inspiration. Um, I sometimes think that sort of. sort of people pick up on Grant and it it kind of inspires a vision um, in them. I, I don't re- when you say sort of magical landscapes, uh, I don't really think that there are magical landscapes, you know, you just you just have sort of uh, just really have a bunch of people um, 
that absorbs somebody's work, work within somebody's work. Um, I think I think I I think it's true of everybody. Really, you know, I'm not sure that there's a magical landscape. Um, you know, inspired by Crohn's work. Mm. And what do you feel that um, Grant's kind of like lasting legacy will be? You know, where do you, you know um, where do you see his? I guess you know his legacy. Like, what 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 does he left behind? What you know? Well, basically, basically, he's left behind a body of work um, that will inspire um, other people. I think really that's that <laughs> that's uh, just about all that we can all hope for really isn't it you know yeah. and, and where, where would you suggest starting because he's you know he's uh, you know my personal favorites i mentioned them the carfax monograph is one of them and magical revival what year was that 1972 72 yeah. yeah i personally i i i personally would recommend um starting i mean sort of none of grants that that easy but probably the magical revival um and Alice Cronin hidden god. Um, they're probably a bit easier than 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 the later work, you know. I mean, some people find the final trilogy uh very difficult. It's my favorite, actually, to be honest, but it, it never used to be that way. You know, I used to prefer that, that earlier stuff, but I would recommend that the that, that people do start with magical revival, but also, you know, what you've mentioned. Uh, the Carfax monographs. I mean, that 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 is an absolutely excellent uh, place to start as well. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So um, let's talk a bit before you go. Let's uh, talk a bit about Starfire and um, like where you're, what 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 you have coming out. You know, what 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 what, what can we look forward to? I, I assume you're going to finish off the the three trilogies. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, basically by the end of this year. Um, will have um, will have reprinted um, the Ninth Arch, so that'll be there. There's an awful lot of Kenneth Grant um, stuff to be published. Actually, um, one thing that I've been working on for quite a while is actually is actually to produce um, selected correspondence of Kenneth Grant. Uh, volume one at the moment. Uh, would cover the period from 42 to 1969. Oh, that'd be interesting. Yeah. An original, an, an original un, unpublished, so, well, it's unpublished so far, so, you know, original, original, fresh material for the... Um, I would like to publish um, the grade rituals of New Isis Lodge, actually. I'd like to do that. I mean, it, it's quite interesting. I never used to want to do that. I, I kind of wanted to sort of secrete it away and keep it as um, documents within, within the Typhonian order. But in a way, I'd rather kind of um, produce our own stuff from there. But the real reason, the real reason that I would publish it is because you publish it and you make it accessible to people and people and you know and maybe people will do something with it and um and sort of you know find maybe it will inspire something really really big and crucial um in them 
I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm in my early seventies now. You know, I've probably only got fifty years left at the most. <laughs> no, but I'm aware. Of what you I'm wish aware. for. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, you know, the fresh blood of virgins, etc. Uh, but yeah, you know, I'm aware that there's that sort of that there's lots of work to make accessible to people. You know, a lot of work of Kenneth Grant's. I, I mean, the correspondence, you know, the, the way that came about is because I set about um, documenting his, uh, his stuff, you know, with Steffi. And when I come across something, you know, really, really interesting that I thought that Steffi would, would find interesting, I'd read it out to her. And then, <clears throat> and then one day she said to me, <clears throat> do you know, Michael, um, do you think that we might publish um, these letters? And, I, you know, I thought, well, thank you, God. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, that is precisely what I've been thinking for quite a while, actually. You know, I, I just find particularly his work in the 1950s, you know, when he, when he, when he had pupils and he was kind of imparting um, from his, his, his vast uh, his store of learning. Um, they're just... They are just the most amazing letters that I've ever come across, you know, um, in terms of in terms of inspiration. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah. that'd be a fascinating publication. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to see that as well. That'd be great. Um, so have you got any other kind of confirmed things coming up like that you've already kind of announced or um, outside of the trilogies? Is there any, because um, I know you, you did the Alcab book. Is there any more? Because I, I remember reading somewhere you were going to publish... Uh, like some of Arcad's work as well, rather than yes, yeah. yes, yes, uh, yes. I'm, um, I'm basically, um, I'm producing that with Henrik Bolton. Henrik Bolton's, Henrik Bolton's putting it together, doing the editing and the footnoting, etc. And volume one is basically going to consist of just what, what, what you might call the major works, which is QBL, the Egyptian revival, and the anatomy of the body of God. And then there will be further volumes in the series. Um, there'll be so-called minor works, you know, which will be things, things well, I don't know, things like uh, crystal gazing, uh, things like um, that essay he produced, uh, presented to Crowley, setting out um, sort of deep cipher in the Book of the Law. Uh, things like that. And then sort of a bit further down the line, you know, there'll be sort of correspondence, further correspondence coming out and so forth. Um, unfortunately, both Henrik and myself, we've got too many irons in the fire. So um, it's taking a bit longer than we envisage to, to, to do it. But uh, I'd like it to be out by the end of this year, but I suspect we're looking at spring 2023. Okay, well, I mean, it's great that you're, um, yeah, it's coming because I mean, uh, QBL, for example, I've ne- not been able to get hold of a, you know, a, a print copy of that. I can find it online, but I'd much rather have a physical book in my hand and, oh, yeah. and read it, yeah. you know. It it's always best, yeah. Oh, and yeah. I mean, and I mean, sort of like the anatomy of the body of God, the body of God is, is a very beautiful book, actually. Mm, interesting. Well, thank you so much for giving us some of your time. I really appreciate yeah. it. And it's patience. Yeah.
and we're back. Uh, what did you think of that, uh, that interview, Mr. Satir? Mr. Staley is a, is a very enthusiastic, very enthusiastic communicator, and I appreciate that very much. Yeah, and what did you think about... Uh, did you learn anything new about the... I, I did, actually. I mean, I was very curious about the, the actual uh, character, the day-to-day character, the personality of Kenneth Grant, and um, how he related to other things. So, uh, yes, that, that we, we got that. We got that. We got that um, explored. I think what was interesting... I was uh, fascinated about the kind of uh, Lovecraft aspects and also the um, influences, and it was quite in- it was it was interesting to hear the uh, about the relationship with Austin Osman Spare, and I thought that was that was fascinating, and Frater Arcad as well. I thought that was also interesting. It was uh, good to sort of I don't know. It's um, there's people have very strong opinions about um, Kenneth Grant, and it was quite interesting to you know um, hear a kind of largely positive um take on him you know or, or it didn't feel like it was a hero worship either which i found really interesting as well i, I was kind of pleased about that actually I, I think it felt more like um someone that appreciated his work and um you know was keen to keep it uh keep it alive and has done a very good job in doing so i think yeah yeah absolutely and um you know and uh, you know part of the lovecraft I mean, I, I, I mean, uh, when I think of Kenneth Grant and and Typhonian Order, I think of love-flavored thing, um, uh, and he, he, he seemed to not not be so influenced by that. I mean, uh, I thought that I found that was intriguing. I mean, I I'm a huge, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of Lovecraft, a big enthusiast for his, his writing. But um, you know, I, I, as I'm, I'm, I am an enthusiast of it as fiction in the pure sense of the word, and um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe undecided uh, about um, its, its its potential in other respects. But that's fine. I mean, you know, I, I I'm, I'm not here. To, you know, that, that's just as me, isn't it? So <laughs> what, what do I know about anything? I mean, anyone who listens to this would be able to. You know, we'd be able to come to their own judgment about that, I think. Mm. But uh, yeah, so and you know, I'm I'm a great you know I'm a great believer that you know it witnesses the vitality of something if it sprouts off in these very interesting sort of areas, mm. and um, long may it do so. Yeah, excellent. I'm I'm certainly intrigued and and fascinated. Like I said in the interview, I'm really ex- I find his books really exciting personally, and um, you know, for me, it's been a real eye-opening experience i don't know I, I i genuinely enjoy the writings of kenneth grant but uh and i'm looking forward to talking like i said in you know we spoke to michael afterwards and we're definitely going to have him back on because i'd really like to delve deep a bit more deeply into the kind of philosophies of kenneth grant and the um some of the magical ideas of of, of kenneth grant um rather than you know because this was a very this this episode is meant to be more of like a 101 broad look at kenneth grant and the typhonian um perspective and uh yeah i think we did a pretty good job of that and i'm looking forward to uh delving deeper into into the, you know in the future so uh yeah anyway if you want to find us on social media you can at sitting now at most places uh follow us on um uh, instagram on twitter um also on youtube uh, where i keep threatening to put videos out which <laughs> i will do i promise uh they are coming um and yeah just uh keep an eye out for the next episode i'm not sure who it's with but i'm sure it'll be good and i'll see you next week